0: Luke chapter 3, and we'll be going over verses 15, 16, and 17. Now the people were waiting expectantly, and all of them were debating in their minds whether John might be the Messiah. John answered them all, I baptize you with water, but one is coming who is more powerful than I. I am not worthy to untie the strap of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit, and fire. His winnowing shovel is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn up with a fire that never goes out. I didn't plan it to be like this today. I did plan on teaching on Luke chapter 3 15 through 17, but I didn't plan that it would correlate with the day of Pentecost, and Brother Arnold has already taken up just a little bit of my sermon, but that's okay. <laughs> all right. Led by the Spirit. I mean, last week we began to delve into the preaching of John the Baptizer and he was a fireball. He was a wild man. You know, he was a Levite. Do you realize that he was a Levite? His parents, both of them, not just one, but his parents, Aaron and Elizabeth, or as they would have been known at that time, Aharon and Elishiva. They were both from the lineage of Aaron. John the baptizer was a thoroughbred Levite. But yet he goes into the wilderness of Judea and he preaches a message of repentance. Why? I believe, obviously, it was because he had the desire to, but the desire was placed in him by our Heavenly Father. And it had already been prophesied that he would go in front of the deliverer Yeshua the Messiah had already been prophesied. The book of Malachi, the book of Isaiah, we talked about that a couple Sabbaths ago. So here this man, he's out in the wilderness, right? He's clothed with camel's hair. He's got a leather belt around his waist and he's hollering, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And repent means what? To change your direction, right? When I do something called catechize my children, which means basically that I ask them Bible questions and they have Bible answers that they give in response to their father. I ask them, one of the questions is, children, what does repentance mean? And they say in unison, to change your direction. And in the biblical sense of the word repent, it means that you're going in the lifestyle of sin, you're going in the lifestyle, the way of the world, that seems to be so easy at first because it just fits in with everything, right? But the Bible tells us the way of a transgressor is the hard way really not the blessed way. Well, when you're going in that direction, you make an about face and you go in the opposite direction towards Yahweh, towards His commandments, following Him, doing what pleases Him in His sight. This is the message of John the baptizer. We know that he said, we learned last week, that the axe is laid at the root of the tree, right? And it's ready to chop every tree down that doesn't bear fruit. John says that those trees will be thrown into the fire. He even told us, John did, what repentance looks like. Remember when people would come to John and they would ask him, what are we supposed to do? John didn't tell them as a minister of the good news of Yeshua. He did not tell them, well, there's nothing that you can do. No, as a minister of Yahweh and as a minister of Yeshua, he told them exactly what they were to do. Remember? Some people asked him, what are we supposed to do? And one of the things he told them was, look, if you've got two tunics, two coats, find somebody that doesn't have any and give one of them to them. Right? And he goes on to tell them to be honest, to be decent, not to be forcing anything upon anybody. We learned that in verses 7 through 14 last week. And so all the people are out in the wilderness. Remember, there's a whole host of people that are coming to be baptized by Yohanan, by John the baptizer. And in verse 15 we read, Now the people were waiting expectantly, and all of them were debating in their minds whether John might be the Messiah. John's preaching, the preaching of repentance and severe warning, it made these people expect that the Messiah was soon to arrive. And they even wondered, could John be the Messiah? When this text here in verse 15 says that they were thinking or debating this in their minds, literally that word is in their hearts. What it means is the seat of emotion, the interior of a man, the part that Yahweh works on and operates on spiritually. And I want you to note that even though we do read in the Bible of many men that were anointed And that's what the word Messiah means, Moshiach. It means to be anointed by Yahweh, sometimes with oil, sometimes with a good portion of his Holy Spirit to do the work of Yahweh. Even though there were many anointed men, these people, it says in verse 15, were looking and wondering if John might be the Messiah. Now what that teaches us is this, is that the people, even though they knew there were other Messiahs, other anointed men in the Tanakh, they were looking for one singular, personal Moshiach, Deliverer, the Davidic Messiah that was to come. And you have a lot of antichrist people, anti-Messiah people that try to corrupt your brain and your mind. I don't want to say they try to brainwash you because Brother Arnold told me a long time ago that brainwashing is a good thing, right? The washing of the water by the Word, amen? We all need a good brainwashing. Praise Yahweh. It's all right. You can smile and laugh. Frankie's not the only one with humor, right? But these people try to corrupt your thought patterns and they try to tell you that Yeshua of Nazareth is not the Messiah of Israel. And one of the things that they say is this. Well, don't you know that there are many Messiahs in the Bible? You know what I tell them when they say that to me? I say, well, sure. I knew that. What's your point? I know the Bible talks about numerous Mashiach. But verses like this show that the people, the Israelite people, even then were looking for a singular, personal, the anointed one that Yahweh was going to send. They thought it. They wondered, is John he? Is this the guy? And What does John say in verse 16? John answered them all and he says this, I baptize you with water, but one is coming who is more powerful than I. I am not worthy to untie the strap of his sandals. So John's answer to the people that are wondering in their minds and their hearts is, no, I'm not he. I'm not the Messiah. John contrasts himself. And I want you to notice that when John contrasts himself, he doesn't just make a contrast like, I baptize with water. But the Messiah is going to baptize with the Holy Spirit. That's one of the contrasts. And he says with fire. We'll get to that in a second. But when he contrasts himself, John puts himself down. He puts himself low. Now, John, how many would agree with me that John was a righteous man? Well, absolutely. Probably one of the most righteous men in all of Scripture chosen by Yahweh, a chosen vessel to do the work of Yahweh. But yet, the closer a person gets in their walk with Yahweh, the less they think about themselves. Even if they're growing more holy and more righteous and keeping more commands, they still, because they recognize the holiness of Yahweh more clear and more clear, they still think less about themselves. Anytime you run into a minister that tends to think more and more about his self, the odds are great that he's drawing further and further away from the Most High. Because the closer he was drawing to the Most High, the less he would think and emphasize his ministry or his self. It's not about Matthew. It's not about John the Baptizer. It's about the one that comes after John the Baptizer. The one that he tells us who is more powerful than I am. Now that is significant. Do you know why that's significant? Take your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter seven. John the baptizer says out of his mouth that the Messiah, the one coming, is more powerful than I am. Well, look at what the Messiah says out of his mouth about John. Luke chapter seven verse twenty eight. This is Yeshua speaking. He says, I tell you, among those born of women, no one is greater than John. But the least in the kingdom of the Almighty is greater than he. And he's talking about once we get to the finality of the kingdom, we'll all in that state be greater than we could have ever been here in this state. But among those born of women, Yeshua himself says, there is no one greater than and John, well, how in the world then could John say in John, or excuse me, in Luke 3 verse 16, that the one coming after me is more powerful than I am? In the beginning of the Gospel of St John, John chapter one, we see two times, I think in John 1.15 and John 1:30, where John the Baptizer says that Yeshua ranks higher than he does, but yet Yeshua says, "No man born of a woman is greater than John." Brothers and sisters, and this is because, and Yeshua knew it when he said it, this is because Yeshua, although he was made of a woman, Galatians 4.4, he was not born of a woman like a regular human being was. I'm talking about the doctrine of the virgin conception of the Messiah, where that the Holy Spirit overshadowed this young teenage girl named Miriam, a Hebrewess, and caused her to conceive miraculously in her womb by the power of the Holy Spirit. This is how both statements don't contradict. No man is greater than John, born of a woman, but yet the Messiah is more powerful and ranks higher than John the Baptist. That's something to think about and meditate on in your study time. John's humility is so low that here in verse 16 he says at the towards the end, I am not worthy to untie the strap of his sandals. Humility, brothers and sisters. And when I read that from the mouth of John the baptizer, you know what I think? I think I'm not worthy to untie the strap of John's sandals. That's what I think. And here John is saying that he's not worthy to untie the strap of Yeshua's sandals. This was a duty that slaves often in that day did towards their master. Think about footwear. Most people either either went barefoot or wore sandals in the first century here in the wilderness of Judea and around the land of Canaan or the land of Israel. And the duty of a slave when the master would get home would be to unloose the strap of the sandal and then wash the feet of the master. The duty of the slave, John the baptizer says, I'm not worthy to loose this one that is coming after me, to loose his sandal strap. Humility. Humble yourself. What I talked about two weeks ago? Humble yourself in the sight of Yahweh and He, in due time, He will lift you up to where you need to be. There's no need for you to exalt yourself because the Bible says every mountain, what do we learn? Shall be brought low. The humble He exalts, those that exalt themselves, He brings them down low. John's bringing himself down low and Yahweh exalts him. Now we're going to learn, I'm not going to get into this tonight, but we're going to learn on the new moon coming up that by man's expectation and by man's definition, John the baptizer did not have a very successful ministry. He only ministered for about one year before he was thrown in prison and then had his head chopped off by a wicked Edomite ruler. However, although man might say that his ministry was not successful, his ministry was very successful in the eyes of Yahweh because he did exactly what Yahweh wanted him to do. Everything happened in John's life for a purpose, and he never backed down, not even from pointing out publicly the sin of the ruthless man named Herod. We'll get more into that on the new moon. John says, this one that's coming after me, he's greater than I am. I'm not worthy to untie the strap of his sandal. And he says, I baptize you with water. And it's a water baptism unto repentance, right? Confessing the sins as they went in. It's a picture of what was going on in the interior of the person. But he says, this fellow that's coming after me, he baptizes with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Now, I believe that when it says he baptizes with the Holy Spirit, I believe that this is correlating with two passages in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 1, verse 5, and Acts chapter 11, verse 16. In Acts 1, verse 5, before Yeshua was taken up into heaven to take his seat at the right hand of Yahweh, he said, look guys, I'm going to come back in the manner you see me leave. He says, but you guys are going to be filled, he's talking to his apostles, with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And then in Acts eleven sixteen, that passage where Yeshua talks about there in Acts 1, 5 is quoted again in Acts eleven sixteen about the household of Cornelius. And in both cases, there were people that miraculously received a gift, and I just taught seven sermons on it, so I'm not going to teach another one. Don't worry. They received a gift whereby they were endowed with the ability to speak foreign languages that they had never learned. What a gift! Now, Brother John, it's only one of the gifts of the Holy Spirit, and you don't have to have the gift of languages in order to have the Holy Spirit that's a false doctrine taught by some in denominationalism. It's one of the gifts, but it's not the only gift. Me and Brother John we were talking about in Acts 19 that when those men that Paul laid hands on received the Holy Spirit, they're, in all likelihood, if you read the text, some of them spoke in languages, but others prophesied. And we see in 1 Corinthians 14 that prophecy is the greater gift, at least in the congregation, over the gift of languages. But there's many other gifts of the Spirit that Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 12. Okay, So Yeshua, part of His ministry, is going to immerse or baptize people in the Holy Spirit. This does lead me in the direction that there is a special baptism of the Holy Spirit post-Yeshua. Now, I do believe that people had some form or measure of the Holy Spirit prior to the first coming of Yeshua. I just talked through Luke chapter 1 not too many months ago, and we saw a mother and her little baby in the womb still received the Holy Spirit. Uh, remember Gabriel told Zechariah when Zechariah was ministering in the temple, he said, this child that your wife's going to have in her elderly age, he's going to be filled with the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb. And at six months there in the gestation period, he leaps inside of Elizabeth's womb, and then she's filled with the Holy Spirit, right? So the Holy Spirit was given to people in some form or fashion prior to the first coming of Yeshua, but there seems to be some kind of special anointing or special baptism that Yeshua is going to bring. Yahweh's given Him him the authority to bring that. You'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Now, then John says, He'll also baptize you with fire. And a lot of people take this, Holy Spirit and fire, they take this to mean one and the same baptism, and I don't. I don't believe that. I believe what we have here is two baptisms. Now, one reason, and I would probably say the only reason, that people would take it to just be one baptism, Holy Spirit and fire, meaning the fire of the Holy Spirit, is what we see in Acts 2 verse 3. Because remember when the apostles received the gift of languages and there was some kind of an appearance of cloven tongues of fire on their heads? But never in Acts 2 is that said to be a baptism of fire. It's just saying that when the baptism of the Holy Spirit came, there was some kind of cloven tongue of fire. And I believe cloven refers to the different directions and the various languages that went out in in different ways on that day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. And now we're going to get more into the Pentecost section of the sermon. And I think you'll see this in just a second. But I believe that the baptism of fire is a baptism that you should not want to partake in. Now, you should want by all means to have Yeshua baptize you with the Holy Spirit. (laughs) As a matter of fact, you need it. You need it. But you don't want to partake in the baptism of fire. And this is why. Look at verse 17. In verse 17 it says, His winnowing shovel is in His hand to clear His threshing floor and gather the wheat into His barn, but the chaff He will burn up with a fire that never goes out. Now notice in verse 17 there are two groups of people, right? One of the groups he refers to as the wheat. We're celebrating Pentecost today. Pentecost is a commemoration of the first fruits of the wheat harvest, the giving of the Torah, It's the second of the three major feasts in Israel, and the wheat goes into the barn in Luke 3, verse 17. But there's another group of people that John refers to as the the chaff. And they don't get the baptism of the Holy Spirit. They don't. They don't get that special portion that Yeshua brings like the prophets prophesied about in Joel 2 where the Spirit is poured out upon the sons and the daughters. Ezekiel 36, I will give you a new heart and I will give you a new spirit. Right? They don't. The chaff don't get that baptism. The chaff get the baptism of fire and not of the Holy Spirit. Two baptisms two groups of people. In verse 17, John likens this to a farmer that has a winnowing shovel or a winnowing fork. And what the Israelites would do, and everybody would have recognized what John was saying when John said it immediately to the crowd, what the Israelites would do is when they would have the wheat harvest, they would bring all of the wheat into something called the threshing floor or the threshing barn. And they would stomp the wheat out And then the farmer would take a big fork, a winnowing shovel. They would take this winnowing shovel and they would grab the wheat and they would throw it up into the air. And both ends of the threshing barn or threshing floor were open and when they would throw the wheat up into the air, the wind would blow through. The wheat, because it was heavier, would drop back down to the floor, but the chaff would blow out to the other side. The chaff was just the husks around the wheat. Okay, Remember, The winnowing shovel is in the hand of the farmer. He threshes this wheat out. He puts the wheat where? Into the barn. That's the baptism of the Holy Spirit. But the chaff, what does he do? He burns up with unquenchable, inextinguishable, or as my Bible says, a fire that never goes out. Two groups. Yeshua will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. That's the wheat. And fire, that's the chaff. It's judgment. You know, I believe that Yeshua is a man of peace, a man of shalom. But He's also a man that brings division. and He does bring strong division at times. He says later on in the Gospel of Luke, He says, listen, don't just think that I came to bring peace on earth. I've not come to bring peace, but a sword. He said sometimes even family members will split apart because of my message. And that's hard for me to swallow. That's a hard thing. Because I love people. Not just my family, but I love people in general. But when I see people take the path of the chaff, I long so much for them to know Yahweh and to know Yeshua and to to follow in His Word. I long it, it, it eats me up. But I know that some people have to fulfill the typology of the chaff that gets burned up with unquenchable fire. The truth of Yeshua causes division. That doesn't mean, let me say this, that doesn't mean that every time we cause division, that it means Yeshua is at work. Sometimes we cause our own division. Amen? Sometimes we get a little frustrated and get a little too dogmatic and get a little too ornery with people, and we cause division that Yeshua is not wanting to take place because we don't speak the truth in love and we expect somebody to grasp what it's taken us 15 or 20 years to grasp overnight. And we shouldn't expect that. So sometimes we cause the division, and it shouldn't be. But sometimes our Lord causes the division. He does. That's because He brings a sword. And He sets people at variance with His message. In this division here, in this baptism of the Holy Spirit, that is, the wheat, the people that are typified as the wheat, in the baptism of fire, the people that are typified as the chaff, we do not get the same thing. Can we take our Bibles and turn over to Psalm chapter 1? This might be a psalm that you're familiar with, and it falls in line. I think that John the Baptizer knew of this. Psalm chapter 1, I'll just read the whole psalm, six verses. says, How blessed or how happy is the man who does not follow the advice of the wicked, or take the path of sinners, or join a group of mockers. Instead, his delight is in Yahweh's instructions, and he meditates on it day and night. I've had several people ask me in the past ten years, Brother Matthew, you sure do meditate on the law a whole lot. And I quote Psalm 1 verse 2. I say, well, the blessed man meditates on the law of Yahweh day and night, so maybe I'm doing something right. Verse 3, he is like a tree planted beside streams of water that bears its fruit in season. What did John the Baptist talk about last week in the sermon? Those who truly repent, what do they do? They bring forth fruit. What did he say in Luke 3 verse 8? If you want to prove that you've repented, bring ye therefore fruits that are consistent with repentance. Well, the blessed man is like a tree that's planted by the rivers of the water. And you know when you study arbory, I think that's the right word, trees that are planted by the river brook and the water brook, they're very fruitful. We watched the film, Back to Eden film, where the guy talked about that. They're very fruitful. And that's what this righteous man or blessed man is like. His leaf doesn't wither and whatever he does prospers. Verse 4, The wicked, notice the contrast, we had the righteous. Now we've got the wicked. The wicked are not like this. Instead, they are like chaff that the wind blows away. Sound familiar? Luke three seventeen. He gathers the wheat, the righteous, into the barn, but the chaff he burns up. Verse 5, Therefore the wicked will not survive the judgment, and sinners will not be in the community of the righteous. For Yahweh watches over the way of the righteous, that's the positive, but the way of the wicked leads to ruin. That's the negative. And I don't believe that the righteous and the wicked get the same thing. I believe they get the opposite. As Romans 6.23 says, for the wages of sin is death, the gift of Yahweh is eternal life through our Master Yeshua the Messiah. So, this passage right here is one of the texts in the Bible out of many. This is one of the texts that leads me away from two different doctrines, Uh, the first of which is a doctrine called universal reconciliation. And I know we've got some brothers here who I love that go along with that doctrine, and I still love them. And I think if they believe that, they'll just repent when the cam gets here, right? (laughs) But they're still my brothers. But this is one of the verses that leads me away from the doctrine of universal reconciliation. Universal reconciliation teaches that eventually every single individual that has ever been born will be in the kingdom of Yahweh. Different levels, yes. Different statuses, yes. But everybody will be in the kingdom. Some more extreme views teach that even Satan and the demons themselves will be saved in the kingdom of Yahweh. And I don't believe that because of verses like this. Uh, This isn't a refiner's fire. How many know the Bible does talk about a refiner's fire many places, but this isn't one of those places. When I read that he gathers the wheat into the barn, but the chaff he burns up with a fire that never goes out, my mind doesn't think of a refiner's fire. I hope that yours doesn't either. Wheat, barn, chaff, fire, inextinguishable. I want to look at just a couple of places that are a background of what John's talking about, John the Baptizer is talking about. Look at Isaiah 66 we have to remember that the majority, the majority of times that the imagery of fire is used in the Bible, it's a fire of judgment. And it's a fire that destroys and not a fire that refines. Isaiah 66, verse 15. Look, Yahweh will come with fire. His chariots are like whirlwind to execute His anger with fury and His rebuke with flames of fire. For Yahweh will execute judgment on all flesh with His fiery sword and many will be slain by Yahweh. Doesn't sound like a refiner's fire to me. As a matter of fact, I know that it's not because if you go down to verse 23 and 24 it says all mankind will come to worship me from one new moon to another and from one Sabbath to another says Yahweh but when verse 23 says all mankind it has to be talking about all of the wheat that are gathered into the barn because look at verse 24 as they leave the all mankind they will see the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me for their maggots will never die their fire will never go out and they will be a horror to all mankind. Not a refiner's fire. It's a fire of judgment. Look at one more prophetic book, the book of Malachi. Last book in the Tanakh, or the Old Testament. Malachi chapter 4. Here we're going to read of another prophecy that talks about or insinuates fire. And once again, it's a fire that destroys, not a fire that refines. Malachi 4, verse 1. For indeed the day is coming, burning like a furnace, Notice the fire imagery. When all the arrogant and everyone who commits wickedness will become stubble. Notice again the imagery of stubble. The coming day will consume them, says Yahweh of hosts, not leaving them root or branches. If Yahweh through His Spirit was going to teach us that the wicked will be destroyed, what would He have to say more than this? Once again, verse 1, The coming day will consume them, says Yahweh of hosts, not leaving them root or branches. Verse 2, the contrast, the righteous, But for you who fear my name, the son of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings, and you will go out and playfully jump like calves from the stall. You will trample the wicked, for they will be ashes, Notice the word picture again. Ashes burned up under the soles of your feet on the day I am preparing, says Yahweh of hosts. These are prophecies that John the Baptizer knew full well of. He was a Levite man taught by his mom and dad all of his childhood. He knew of these texts of Scripture and he uses them in Luke 3.17 to talk about the difference between the wheat people and the chaff people. But, Not only does Luke 3.17 lead me away from believing in the doctrine of universal reconciliation, I want to also share with you, Luke 3.17 leads me away from believing in the doctrine of eternal conscious torment. And what I mean by that is the doctrine that people go to a burning hell and burn throughout all eternity in pain and agony. I do not believe that doctrine. This is one of the verses that leads me away from believing that. Now I want you to know that the reason I don't believe that doctrine is not just because I don't like it. It wouldn't bother me even if I didn't like it and there were Bible verses that taught it, then I would believe it anyhow and I would learn to like it. Amen? It's like I learned to love Yahweh's law. I don't always love it all at first, but I learned to love it by the Spirit of Yahweh that dwells within me. The reason I don't believe in eternal conscious torment is because I don't believe that the Bible teaches, that is the destiny for the wicked. I do believe in varying degrees of punishment. am not going to teach the whole doctrine of Gehenna or hell right now. I believe in varying degrees of punishment, but I believe that they all culminate in death. The righteous get eternal life. They joyfully jump like calves of the stall, right? But they're trampling the wicked because the wicked are like ashes. They're the chaff that's been burned up. They don't have root or branch. The maggots or around eating them. The fire never goes out. That's a picture of a valley in the first century named the Valley of, of Hinnom or Gehenna, which is the word that Yeshua used more than anybody else in the New Testament to talk about the destruction of the wicked. Luke 3.17 says that the chaff will be burned up. And it says, depending on what translation you read, it says, with a fire that is unquenchable, inextinguishable or the Holman Bible that I read says a fire that never goes out. And a lot of people say, well, see, Brother Matthew, see, it's forever burning. All through the Bible, especially if you're already familiar with the Tanakh, the Old Testament, all through the Bible, the words unquenchable and inextinguishable, words like that are used to talk about the effects of the fire and not the duration of the fire. Now, what I mean by that is this. You can't quench it. It will do exactly what Yahweh wants it to do. In that way, it is inextinguishable. Only Yahweh can put the fire out. You can go to text like, and I urge you to do this, Isaiah chapter 34, and you can read about how that the land of Esau, the Edomite territory, was consumed with unquenchable fire. But it's obviously not burning. Now, uh, you can read in Jeremiah 17 right around verse 27 where Yahweh was going to give a severe destruction on the people of Israel that desecrated the Sabbath day and He would kindle a fire in their gates and He says the fire would be unquenchable, meaning it will do exactly what I have designed it to do. And I do want to turn to this last one. Can we go to the book of Jude? It's the book right before Revelation. Jude, there's only one chapter, so we'll go to Jude chapter 1, verse 7. tell you what, let's start reading at verse 5. Jude chapter 1, verse 5. Now, I want to remind you, though you know all these things, the Lord having first of all saved the people out of Egypt, later destroyed those who did not believe. And He has kept with eternal chains in darkness for the judgment of the great day, angels who did not keep their own position but deserted their proper dwelling. Verse 7 is my key text here. In the same way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them committed sexual immorality and practiced perversions, just as they did, and serve as an example by undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. Now that's even more, it seems like to me, potent than unquenchable or inextinguishable. But we all know that Sodom and Gomorrah is still not on fire right now, Right? But the eternal refers to the effects of the fire. It wiped out Sodom and Gomorrah, never again to return. And the fire that is unquenchable in Luke 3.17 will burn up the chaff. It will do exactly what Yahweh wants it to do. And no man, no matter how strong he thinks he is, no man can put out that fire. So Yeshua according to John the baptizer, He can be peace to you. And I want you to know that today. If you're living in sin and you've not yet repented of your wickedness and your sorriness and your filth and you're hanging on to all of those transgressions, you can drop it all. If you repent of your sin and trust in the Savior, you will be saved from the wrath of Yahweh. He will save you. But, He's not peace or the Prince of Peace to everybody. To a lot of people, He's the baptism of fire. And they're the chaff. And they get burned up. And they're destroyed. And they die and they have to be apart from Yahweh forever. We, like John the Baptist, if we're true preachers of the good news of Yeshua, We, like John the Baptist, need to point people to the one that came after John the Baptist. John never pointed people to himself as righteous and as good of a man as he was. He never pointed people to himself. He always pointed people to the one that was more powerful than he. And that's what we need to do today. You know, we can preach a lot of law, but if you don't follow that preaching of the law up with gospel, it's not doing anything. The law wounds, it convicts, it condemns. But people need to hear the sweetness of the good news of the Messiah. That even though the law condemns them straight to Gehenna, there is a way of escape. Through the Prince of Peace, you can repent and believe in Him. Be baptized in water for the remission of sins. And He will be to you, the farmer that gathers the wheat into the barn. Amen? And I want us to remember this Pentecost that we are either going to be wheat that's gathered into the barn or we're going to be chaff that's burned up with unquenchable fire. And just ask yourself, which one are you? You know, if you haven't repented and if you're still holding on to your old ways, you will be burned up and you will experience the second death. And it will be very, very bad for you on that day. So I urge you, I urge you as a minister of Yahweh to repent of your sins And trust in the Son of Yahweh that died for all those that repent and believe in Him. And you'll be the weed into the barn. Amen? Hallelujah. So let's stand and have a word of prayer as we close. Almighty Yahweh, I love You so much and I'm so thankful for Your Word. Let us remember the words of John the Baptizer. Let us, Father Yahweh, love His message Father Yahweh, I pray that You would let us follow His message. And I pray that even today when we read about Him, that we would still hear Him telling us, No, I'm not the Messiah. There's one coming after me. He's more powerful. He baptizes with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And He's got a winnowing shovel in His hand. And He's ready to dole out what needs to be doled out. I pray we would hear that same message today. Father, on this feast, thank you for all the beautiful brothers and sisters and all the wonderful children. I pray that you just give us a great time of fellowship and food. Father Yahweh, just bless all the sisters and brothers that have brought food for the congregation to feast on. And Father, we bless you for the good good land that grows the food We bless you, Father, for the removal from the land of Egypt many years ago and also for the nourishment that the food brings to our bodies. We glorify you, Father Yahweh, and it's through your Son, Yeshua of Nazareth, that I pray. Amen.